The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. Hello, and welcome to the best of the gist. Now, normally on the best of the gist, I play you a segment that was the best of the week that was, and an all-timer, the best of the gist archives. I'm going to do the second part, and I'll do that first, but let me tell you about the first part. The interview is not from this week, and even more interestingly, it's not actually from this show. It's from Megan Downs' show. Megan has been a friend of mine and a source of intellectual stimulation for years. Her podcast, The Unspeakable, very prominent in my feed. So what I wanted to do was play you a bit of The Unspeakable to expose you to that and to do so via a guest of The Unspeakable that I have some reasonable evidence you'll be interested in. It's me. The full interview with me, not sounding as good as I do now, is on her podcast. Check that out. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. But will give you an excerpt of the speaking that I did on the Unspeakable podcast with Megan Down. But first, I have an interview with Chris Licht, who was just appointed to head CNN to take Jeff Zucker's old job. Chris Licht's last job, where he's coming from, is he was the showrunner for Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And it was in this capacity that I interviewed him. Let me reset to where we were at the time of the interview, February 2017. Late Show uh, with Colbert debuted in September of 2015. People, critics, loved it. It was funny, but it didn't do well in the ratings. The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, its main competition, was averaging more than a million viewers every night for the first year of The Late Show's existence. Colbert was seen as definitely sharp and skilled, but Jimmy Fallon, he was fun. And Jimmy Fallon, and to some extent, other late-night hosts ruled in terms of viral videos and social media. Colbert was trailing. So CBS brings in a show showrunner in April of 2016 named Chris Licht. He was a founding producer of Morning Joe. He was a former CBS This Morning executive producer. So by 2016, the year ends, Trump's elected, Colbert does a live show that night. Can you imagine doing a live show as Trump is elected? Uh, The live show all goes to hell in a fascinating way. So uh, cheers. To America. Here's to democracy. Yeah, in action. Um, Let me ask you a a technical question that you guys being political analysts would know, uh, you'd understand. Uh, what the f- is happening? <laughs> so we're less than a month into Trump's presidency. The nation has clearly lurched abruptly, but Colbert's ratings have begun to inch up. And that's the moment I caught up with Chris Licht. Here's that interview from mid-February 2017. Chris, uh, tell me your name and what you do. Uh, Chris Licht, and I am the uh, showrunner and executive producer of the Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and also uh, Executive Vice President of Special Programming for CBS Corporation. You're a news guy, right? That's your background? I, up until about eight months ago, total news guy. And what kind of a news guy were you? I mean, I've looked over your career. It seems varied, but it seems like you're drawn to the uh, meteor side, meteor side of news. Yeah, I, I have been fortunate enough to be on projects that value actual news. So that's been really cool, whether it was Morning Joe or CBS This Morning. These were projects that really thrived on doing actual, real journalism. Do you think there's a parallel between what Colbert is for late night and what CBS Morning is for that day part? You know, within the continuum of um, kind of substance and going for it and not pandering to service and let's be fun and cute. 
I would say Colbert and CBS are both on one side of that continuum. Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities. Steven is a grown-up. The show is for grown-ups. Yes. Um, and it's about uh, long-term brand building as opposed to short little shots of adrenaline that hopefully will spike the ratings once in a while. You know, that's really, we look at it as the long haul and, and programming it in a smart, funny way for smart people. So when you say Steven's a grown up, is that to the, in the eyes of the TV industry, is that a plus or a minus? Well, I look at it through the eyes of the audience. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but, but then again, if the audience is over 49, they're not as uh, important as an audience member who's 20 years younger. Not necessarily true. I think it's a unique voice in the late night landscape. And that's what, what he has to be. This is who, what you watch on his show every night is who he is. And that is who you hired. And that's what the show is built around. He doesn't pretend well. So you're seeing a guy who is best known for a character that is 90% antithetical to who he actually is, doesn't pretend well. <laughs> That's a good point. In, in, in this venue, where he's not doing a character and he's doing Steven, he is who he is. Since he's not a stand-up, uh, and since he played that character for so many years, a version of that character on The Daily Show, and I know his career beforehand was more improv, you know, is it fair to say that this is uh, the longest he's been himself and tried to get an audience just being himself? I think it's the only time. Yeah. I think in his career, he's he's either been playing a character as an actor or as a comedian, but this is the first time he is just being himself. So in the beginning, and I listened to the, the transition podcast, his transition went smoother than others, I would say. I listened to his podcast beforehand, and you know he would talk about, oh, I was out selecting the type of wood for the desk. Like, was that a mistake then, to have him that involved? I think, I wasn't here, but I think he would tell you that he didn't know what he didn't know about a new launching a network broadcast. And I think uh, if he had to do it all over again, he wouldn't have been as involved in those things. Yeah. Um, but if you know him, it was quite natural that he would be that involved in it. And now uh, he realizes other people can handle that stuff. The changes that I have noticed are things about kind of bonding with the audience here in the Ed Sullivan Theater and the audience at home, uh, high-fiving the audience, even... Tell me if I'm wrong. I, th I think the camera angle of the monologue has changed since you started. Yeah. Here's the thing. What you're seeing, like we're relating to the audience, yeah. is a byproduct of him having fun and feeling more natural. And so it's not like we sit in a room and go, you know, what would be great is if you walked out and did high fives with the audience. Just like we never said, you know, it would be great. You should run out of the theater at the end. Yeah. You know, all of that he just does. And if it works we do it again running out of the theater at the end was born on the night where he got drunk you know he got drunk on set and he's like i i am not doing the postmortem. i am running out of this theater i'm getting in my car and going home and I, you know the next day i go that was actually pretty cool we should do that every night he's like great so it's he's discovering things because that's he's relating to the material and to entertaining the audience as opposed to, you know, the, the, the wood on the desk. But are there things that, so you, you know, paint this picture where he does something and if it works, you're the one to point to it. But are there things that you said, let's try this. It came from you. There must be. It's a collaboration. Yeah. yeah. You'll sure. I mean, so what are some of those? The, the show having a real structure, Mm -hmm. uh, was really important where we, we try to do those cold opens every night. The monologue, 
doesn't always have to be X no, X length and then move over to the desk and do a desk bit. Maybe some nights should just be the monologue and, yes. have, and having the structure of producing a show form around the creativity that's there. Because beforehand was there this idea that, well, let's embrace the fact that anything can happen. And now you're saying let's embrace the fact within this structure. In fact, creativity uh, tends to flourish within structure. Yeah, it's bringing a little bit of what I learned in doing news where you, you know, we did live shows every morning and it has structure, but you have to be ready to blow the structure up when it, yeah. when it needs it. And just bringing that mentality of not becoming predictable. It's, it's part of the larger avoiding the largest sin in, in any entertainment of being predictable and boring. What about the v virality part of it? You know, uh, shareable videos that you don't need the structure for that. That just a, can be a one-off thing that gains fire and sure. carpool stuff. Uh, what what Fallon does, you know, he's going to rap with uh, Timberlake. It's going to get a lot of hits. Sure, I'm sure you'd love to have a replicable uh, property that can go viral to that degree. How important is it to you? How do you get there? Look, from my standpoint, I would love it. I I love it when we have moments on the show that go viral. Yeah. That to me is, that's, that's the apex of what we're trying to do. Now that said, um, you're always trying to find something that catches fire and it takes time. The thing that Steven did at the end of the Showtime special, the monologue was the number one trending thing on YouTube for five days. You know, that is a moment that, you know, and, and it broke every rule. It was like, 14 minutes long, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it broke all of the rules of something quote unquote going viral. But if we can create moments on the show that get passed around, uh, and are a reflection of the comedy and sensibility that we have, great. He's not going to be, uh, this is not going to be a show and he's not going to be a host where you do something goofy with a celebrity and that's going to be our bread and butter. So how did our politics get so poisonous? I think it's because we overdosed, especially this year. We drank too much of the poison. You take a little bit of it so you can hate the other side. And it tastes kind of good. And you like how it feels. And there's a gentle high to the condemnation, right? And you know you're right, right? Mm. You know you're right. I think the desk pieces, I think the second bit of the show after the monologue, were the best of their kind. And it, I think post Daily Show, that was the best example of that sensibility. Can his, well, he's not gonna change, but is it the right positioning for him in this political moment to be not just your skeptical uncle who will raise an eye at both sides, but really aggressively, properly, in my opinion, um, a watchdog of Trump? <sighs> It's not a question I think about a lot because it is who he is. Yeah. We are a topical entertainment late night show. And that is a reflection of what's happening in the world. And right now, this is the biggest story in the world and the anxiety over it. Um, and let's see what happens. And, you know, Stephen's mantra is give him a chance, but don't give him an inch. And that actually puts him far closer to the middle than a lot of people because he's not a never Trumper or any of that stuff. He's our president. Give him a chance, but don't give him an inch. So, so my question is, in the, the history of late night, is there evidence that if you have a more pointed take versus a more, 
you know, middle of the road affability. You're you're aiming towards just likability versus you're aiming towards pointed. That pointed could win. Well, I think you can be likable and pointed. Yeah. Again, he is who he is, and he's pointed, and it's a unique spot in the landscape right now. I think part of what did work when the show started was trying to be all things to all people. So what what fell away? What was one of the things that he stopped trying to be? I think he started speaking his mind. I I don't think he was in the beginning. Yeah, I guess to put it bluntly, well, I got two questions to put it bluntly. One is I look at the Leno and Letterman dynamic, and I think everyone, I don't know everyone, but most people who appreciate comedy or um, aesthetics would say Letterman was innovative and Leno was a successful late night host, but he was really playing towards broad swaths of middle America trying to be likable. And now you have the same dynamic with Colbert and Fallon. And Fallon is, you know, puppy dog likable, and Colbert is more on the Letterman side of pointed. Letterman lost, quote-unquote, lost that last race, why will the new one be different? I think there is enough room in late night for something for everybody. The show doesn't have to be something for everybody. And I think if Les Moonves wanted uh, another version of Jimmy Fallon, then that's what he would have hired. He hired Stephen for a reason. All right, Chris, thanks so much for this your time. This is great. That My pleasure. Excellent. And the coda to that interview is, since that point, Colbert eased past Fallon and has never trailed in the ratings since. He is now the king of late night, and I think Chris Lick's leadership and, you know, Trump as a target certainly helped him. Mike Pesca. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Megan Down, thank you so much for having me. Um, what kind of journalist did you want to be when you were starting out? I wanted to be a, I, you know, there are three things that I ever wanted to do, which are to be a talk show host, to be a comedy writer, and to be a, uh, to cover a sports team, to be a beat writer for a sports team. And I pretty much got to do all of them. Uh, over the course of my career, but in a weird way, you know, I would host Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and that was like being in a comedy writing room for the several weeks that I did that, and I was a sports reporter for NPR, which wasn't one team on a beat, but in a way, it was a lot better, and now I'm hosting my show, so I'm really happy about that, but I, I did define journalism in the way I think you're defining journalism, which is, you know, tell, tell the truth and let the, uh, let the chips fall where they may. And I think now the definition of journalism is more of a, uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. We've already decided who the afflicted is. So let's just go with that narrative. That's our job. Progressive activism. Oh, and you're really comfortable saying that because I think that's true. I think that's true, but I would also, it's so easy for someone to come along and say, well, you're using a very broad brush there. Well, I mean, I, I would say that uh, the New York Times still has fantastic journalists who surprise me all the time. And, you know, Michael Powell write an essay that cuts across, that cuts against this general grain. And the Washington Post did the best coverage of Rittenhouse that totally shaped my opinion, which wound up being, I don't think he's guilty by letter of the law. And the Washington Post, it was actually a video piece, actually proved that to me. So it doesn't mean that there isn't journalism that, you know, will step on the toes of even their ideological um, 
soulmates, <laughs> bedfellows. But the fact is, it's just pretty clear who the ideological bedfellows are. And there aren't too many crusading journalists who say, you know, I don't care who knows it. We're going to write what needs to be written. Mostly, especially in the age of Trump, we're going to do the thing we need to do to be the resistance. And then we're going to do the thing we need to do to take the right side of the reckoning. And when you get into all the pressures of journalism and the monetary pressures and where the young talent is coming from, I guess too many journalists see think that it's hard to do anything else. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. Where is the young talent coming from? Because it's not coming from the same place that it used to. <laughs> well, I mean, I used to just doubt. I mean, all my life and probably your life too, you'd always hear stories about how the colleges were crazy and you'd put them in the pile of, okay, you know, the exception that proves the rule or, you know, maybe the people telling me these examples aren't, you know, telling them as accurately as possible. They're doing them, they're, they're telling them with a little bit of uh, uh, mustard on their fastballs. But yeah, then I began to really see that colleges were churning out uh, thinkers of a very similar ilk, and they went into journalism, not for the ideas of telling a good story, but progressive activism. Not everyone, but, you know, more and more did in a way that's different from, oh, yeah, the youth are always more idealistic. The youth are always more liberal. Um, I think that was true, but it took on a different sheen. And the idea of, well, Wesley Lowry's idea of you know, let's dispense with objectivity. I have a lot of thoughts of that. I mean, in journalism, objectivity was never really cited as the ideal, but I think fairness was, and just humility, like maybe my side or maybe my thoughts coming in don't, maybe they need to be questioned. Maybe I should absolutely present Steel Man, right? Or Star Man, as uh, I think you've talked about a couple times. Oh, that's the, Angel Angel Eduardo's uh, Yeah, concept, he was great. I uh, started following him on Twitter thanks to hearing him on this show. But, you know, maybe the idea that, I, you know, I don't I don't know. I'm not going to come in saying that uh, I, I got the answer to this story. I'll just do the best job I can quoting either all sides or both sides or maybe just one side if it's so clear that there needs to be one side. That as the ideal is being questioned. I don't know that it should be questioned. I'm not going to stick up for objectivity. That's a false idea. But yeah. there is a humility and you don't know the narrative before you go out and report it. And it's just a better exercise to let everyone have their say. And then it's not really about you as the journalist deciding who's right or wrong, at least not for the first few years. It's about giving the reader the best information they can so they decide. Is this because the business model has changed in such a way that it's a lot harder to make a decent living as a journalist than it was in the past? It's never been easy. Obviously, it's never been a high rolling job, but the whole industry is so centered around opinion writing anyway, because that's so much cheaper than paying reporters that I sometimes wonder if people who go into journalism now, they it's like the same people who might have just gone into the, the nonprofit world or been activists uh, in the past. Like th there are people who can afford to do this kind of work and that's a particular kind of person. Yeah. 
It might be. It might have something to do with that. And that dovetails with the professionalization of journalism. So, you know, you have to go to a journalism school, which costs, what, $80,000 a year. A certain type of person does that. A certain indebted person does that. You also lose the kind of blue-collar worker who didn't think of journalism as a particularly exalted profession. But I think it's more like the people... The, the older people who are supposed to be mentors and had an idea of the right and wrong way to do it have been, I think, a bit intimidated. <laughs> Maybe it's because um, the world of journalism has gutted out that job and they no longer exist. But the institutional memory of saying something quite bluntly, like journalists aren't activists, you don't hear that message too much. Well, because they're afraid com- to say it, though. But yeah. The people yeah, are there who believe that. They're just there are people who their believe it should said. be done. And they try to, you know, denude the copy of activism, but it's really hard. And then maybe they think they're going to be on the chopping block. And it, it is a little difficult because there is a long history of absolutely activists and Ida Tarbell and, and Nellie Bly and activists who were journalists and did great nonfiction. But in general... You know, newspaper columnists and the and networks and you know CNN and MSNBC should have an allergy to activism within their ranks. And what happens is, you know, if you see people who are activists on the right side of the issue, you fail to give them scrutiny, and that's bad. That's bad in terms of trust of the leaders. That's bad in terms of creating a narratives about who's right and who's wrong. I would like all journalists to understand, hey, maybe these activists are on the side of the angels or on my my side, but still they deserve the same kind of scrutiny as, you know, the people that are on the other side. Both the cops and Benjamin Crump Crump, Crump, deserve a fair, um, a, a great deal of scrutiny, I would say. It's not like one is inherently right and the other we have to be suspicious of. Maybe we've turned it around, right? Maybe in the 1970s it used to be, oh, Al Sharpton, that guy should be looked at cynically. The, uh, the cops need to be trusted. Okay, so there was a corrective, but perhaps these days it's an overcorrective. Do you think there's a generational component here? I'm not talking about like the woke millennials and Gen Zers versus the rest of us, but I'm thinking of like baby boomers in these newsrooms retiring or being close to retirement. And so they would be a cohort with an institutional memory. But then there's the Gen Xers. And I've talked about this on the show before, like, you know, people in their late 40s into their 50s, you know, we're in a difficult spot because we basically share the values of the baby boomers, but we're not ready to retire. We've got to hang on for another 15 years, you know, at least. Right. And so I kind of feel like, you know, the, the newsrooms that I'm a little bit familiar with, people I know who work in these places, there's a sense that there is, you know, a kind of you know, there are people who are kind of feel like they're elder statesmen or they're getting to be in that position, but that they are being totally overwhelmed by the younger staffers and they couldn't mentor them if they even wanted to. (laughs) And it's really not worth trying to because they like, I guess, what what am I saying? I mean, I, I guess I wish what I maybe what I'm saying is I guess I wish more of those baby boomers who like, you know, had one foot out the door would just throw down and say what's true. And maybe the rest would follow. I don't know. Marty Baron tried it and he wound up having his legacy somewhat tarnished. Right. <sighs> well, I, I, 
I hear what you're saying. I think it probably does go on. I think that that is probably the age cohort of the defensive crouch. I think that time was, I don't know, I don't go back more than two generations, but it probably was the case that one generation passed their wisdom on to the next. And now there's been a disruption, a disruption that probably coincides with the rise of the internet, the, uh, the uh, assumption that this big newspaper that dominated the town will continue to be so, it all gets thrown into the mix. But yeah, in general, I definitely see that phenomenon, uh, not explaining all of it, but occurring. Yeah. And I another thing people don't talk about, too, when they talk about trying to, you know, diversify newsrooms, trying to, you know, hire black reporters, for instance, you know, it, it's a pipeline problem. I would think like, you know, that if, if you are somebody who is you know, going to a certain kind of school and, you know, able to take a certain kind of low paying job that requires an internship that, you know, really you you cannot make an adult living for many, many years in the beginning of that career, you are much more likely to be a middle, upper middle class white person than a person of color. Like, uh, you know, I I, I don't know if I'm going to get, well, I'm not going to get canceled, but, you know, if you are like, uh, say a, a working class person of color who's really smart and really hardworking and striving and ambitious, you're not going to want to go work for NPR. You're going to want to work for McKinsey, right? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I think that there, there are people, I, I really don't know about that part of it. I think that there are people who just want to be journalists and places like NPR were um, under uh, representative of the U.S. population for a long, long time. And now there is a real swing in the other direction. Uh, it was just reported that 78% of their hiring in the last couple of years have been people of color, 22% white people. Um, so that is a big, that is a big correction. Um, and it also, I guess, would speak to there are plenty of people who want to do journalism for NPR. And the kind of journalism they want to do is probably the kind that you hear on a lot of their podcasts, like, you know, Code Switch or um, Without a Trace. And, and that begets more of that. Mm-hmm. I don't think, see, to me, I don't mind so a great uh, variety of these voices saying the things that they're going to say. I just would say, and if there are those within the stable of voices who are a little out of step with everyone else, you really need to make an effort to keep them inside and tell them that's okay and say, we stand for you saying stuff that's a little outside the party line and a little uh, outside a certain ideology. And that's the part I worry about. Like, do all... Give me all the interesting, fascinating podcasts that are driven by Wesley Lowry's idea of let's do away with objectivity for whatever that means. But give me some other podcasts and give me some other reporting that either says, actually, I'm going to be straight down the line or says, okay, if you don't want to be objective, maybe we, you know, do the kind of story that you might find uncomfortable if, if, um, you might find uncomfortable if you're mostly a, a, a uh, progressive activist. What was it like at NPR when you started there? And what year was that? I started, well, I worked for a show called On the Media, which is an NPR show, but it wasn't with the network yes, itself. Yes, I love that show. Or I used to. Brooke Gladstone <laughs> and Bob Garfield. And then I worked for a show that was there and died a midday show called Day to Day. But from there, I was absorbed into the network itself. So I was there for 10 years from 2004 to 2014. And it was 
what was it? I, I loved it. I loved my friends. I loved the, the beat that I covered. I was valued. I think I was valued um, to some extent by a lot of the people there as sort of the spicy salsa, the condiment, but not the main course. It's kind of, it's the, kind of racist, isn't it? It's an, an Italian slur. <laughs> I was, spicy yes, sauce. I, I was valued as the Putinesca sauce, but not the marinara. Mm. Um but and it got it did get stifling, and I wanted to grow, and it was very clear that you know, I my voice was valued as the change of pace in a perhaps like stayed hour of all things considered, and I wanted to do more, and that's why I went slate, and uh, I was able to you know express myself, and not even necessarily my opinions, just have a lot more ambition, which by the way is informing a lot of the recent. NPR defections. I mean, if you read the coverage yeah. of that, it's like all these hosts say, I just feel kind of stifled there. And, you know, people say, is there a stifling of a certain kind of host of a certain background? I was stifled too. NPR is a lot of things, but it's not particularly nimble or ambitious. But what was it like just in the office? Was there a kind of, um, what was the exchange of ideas and jokes and humor? What was the office culture like at NPR when you were there? Oh, I think it was like really open and same thing with Slate when I started. It was really open. You didn't have to, I ne I don't think I, first of all, I didn't say anything that I think would be offensive. Although, uh, you know, the latest examples show that maybe I have a bad barometer for what that would be. But I think things were, things were pretty good. And I never said to myself, ooh, can't say that. I mean, let's put it this way. The office the the head the person who ran the New York bureau the titular New York bureau chief was a woman named Margot Adler who was the biggest proponent of Wicca in the United States she was the greatest authority like the chief Wiccan of the USA and she and I were great friends and we bonded over how much she whatever like Bill Maher's monologue the day before and she was like kind of wild and. You know, I think that she's probably she would probably have been she's since uh, died and it was very sad. I think she'd probably be uh, a conservative's. Um, she'd probably be something like a conservative person's caricature of what an NPR reporter would be. <laughs> but she was a goddamn great reporter. You know, you maybe couldn't put her on every story, but she knew how to tell a story. And the point that she was was trying to make wasn't something like, look at this underlying social ill. It's like, look at this human being and this story that this human being had to share. So it was all about storytelling through people. And we were excited when we could do that, you know? All right, Mike Pesca, many, many thanks and, and good luck. You're welcome, Megan. Take care. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the Gist senior producer. Michelle Hunter is the maintainer of the website, mikepesca.com slash appearances, where you'll find many of the fine interviews I've done and some of the crap ones. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Check out advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu depru dupru. Talk to you Monday. Mm -hmm.